The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Yeah, yeah, that's we a podcast. Yeah, it's a, it's a podcast. We got mail. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, you needn't, but if you wish, for the purposes mm. of just this podcast, mm. you can call me Rockmeister McCool. Oh, please uh, do. If, take if, take if the chance. Wish. If you uh, wish. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. It works very simply. You send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, asking us questions, uh, telling us stories, uh, correcting us if we got something wrong, asking for uh, uh, recommendations, whatever it is you want, uh, and uh, and we'll answer your correspondence. Whitney, we also have a P.O. Box. What is our P.O. Box? We do indeed. Yeah, send us an actual physical letter. We like those in an envelope so uh, to the critically acclaimed. I can't even yeah. say it. The critically acclaimed network, PO Box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double zero six four. Do that. Okay. I and 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 as <clears throat> is tradition, we always begin with a piece of physical mail if we have one. It's basically a surefire way to make sure your correspondence gets read. Uh, and one second here, I'm gonna I'm gonna use a uh, a letter opener. Oh, oh! Do you have one of those little dagger? I always liked those as a kid because they looked like mm-hmm. knives. Yeah. So we would well, play I, with them, of course. I, I, actually, actually, I I can't find my actual letter opener, so I'm literally just using a knife. But uh, that's oh. <laughs> it's just like it's fish fun. Now now, now I'm just tearing it. Everyone can hear it. It's fun. Uh, one sec. I'm gonna put that down. Safety first. Okay. Here we go. Ooh. Oh, there is. Oh, there are two little envelopes in here. There's one for you and there's one for me. But let's oh. read the letter first. Okay. Uh, this is a letter. This is a letter from Mark from, from Mark Edward Hoyk. Hey, Hoyk. We know yeah, Hoyk. Hoyk's, Hoyk's a good friend of ours. Mark Edward Hoyk, Hoyk is uh, one of our our dear friends here in the entertainment uh, industry, the Los Angeles film scene. Uh, he has uh, uh, God contributed to so many uh, special features. If you follow along like cult horror cinema, you've probably encountered one of his commentary tracks. Uh, he's hosted movies here in Los Angeles. He's one of those people who's like Whitney and I are both like, yeah, he's smarter than us. It's fine. Uh, yeah, we, we, yeah, we're never gonna fight. He, him. He, he knows more than we do. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor to be uh, to be considered a, a, a colleague, I suppose. Uh, but we have a we have a letter, and it reads as follows. And uh, oh, and by the way, normally Whitney reads these, but uh, we have to record this remotely. And by sheer chance, I happen to be the one who had the letter. So here we go. Dear Bibbs and Mister Rock, Son of God. 
<laughs> Roxon of God. All right. Yes. Uh, I or, am or is, always... is my first name Rock and my last name Son of God, or is it one uh, word? It's, well, it's four words, so I think it's just Rock Son of God. Rock uh, Son or, of God. Oh, no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> I need new oh. glasses. It's Mr. Rock Son of Cool. Mr. Rock Son of Cool. Oh, yeah. The, the, o, and, the yeah. o and the L were kind of close together, so it looked like a D for a second. So Ro- I thought, Rockmeister. Yeah. Mac, Mac yeah. Cool would be Son of yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, it all, it all works out, and I'm, I'm, I'm a dork. Okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, I am always cognizant of the challenges both of you regularly face in creating and sustaining all of your podcasts, fulfilling outside job obligations, and having personal time for yourselves and treasured ones. And oftentimes, your ability to. Uh, uh, so, hold on, uh, the second Can't, review. Uh, and oftentimes your ability to see and review new films sometimes takes a hit. This is all me needing new glasses. This has nothing to do with Mark's handwriting. Uh, okay. This is what I kept in mind when, as I was assembling my best films of the year, I was seeking out, uh, I was seeking outside opinions on some of my picks and finding, to my dismay, <clears throat> you aren't able, to, you weren't able to review them. So besides subscribing to the Patreon, I thought I should provide uh, uh, direct assistance. Enclosed are gift cards to one of my favorite theaters in town, the Lumiere Music Hall. Ooh. It's where I saw a lot of the movies I wish I could consult your opinions on. And since sometimes these films don't screen for critics and you have to watch them on your own time and expense, I hope this will be helpful. Thank you for all you do. And to quote the late Bob Wilkins, watch horror films, keep America strong. Love, <laughs> Mark Edward Hoyk. Thank you. That is that is very cool of you. And Mark, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna speak very, to you directly. I, thank you. That's incredibly sweet. I will hand bibs. Uh, uh, hand bibs. I'm hand Whitney. I'm a dork. Anyway, I will hand Whitney his his card next time I see him. Obviously, and uh, uh, you know. As sweet as that is, it's also hard for for me not to interpret it as "do better," and uh, and I will like I will a, attempt I, to do better. Yeah, we, we we see like you know close to two hundred films every year, but yeah, we we it doesn't it's matter. We're still we're still going to fall behind. There's going to be a lot. It's of always something, and we have all these other projects that we do that you know the, these take up time as well. Mm-hmm. We have our ongoing uh, Star Trek podcast at the Patreon, our Oscars podcast at the Patreon. You have a day job. I'm scrambling to get freelance work since I lost my day job. Uh, we're, we're and and I'm trying to do outside projects as well. And as Mark said, we're trying to make time for for our loved ones. Um, being a film critic may not be physically demanding, but it is time consuming and difficult if you want to do it well. Yeah, and, well, like any job, really. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and the, the music hall—it's um, an interesting choice, I guess. Mark is there a lot these days, but that's hmm. um, that's the one in Beverly Hills. Yeah, um, I haven't been there forever, actually. Yeah, I I haven't been there since. Uh, since it was owned by Lemley, it used to be the Lemley Music Hall. Now it's mm. owned by a different company, and I think it's been uh, like I think they cut it up into like smaller houses. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually and trying so, to. Like, so I think there's actually like a lot of different films playing there at once now. Mm. Uh, well, that's that is very exciting. I yeah, jeez, hmm. trying to make sure. Yeah, I have. I don't. God, I haven't been there in many many years, but I or, will here, definitely here's something go. I, yeah, I'll, I'll I will go too. I'll I'll see if I can make it out there. Mm. Um, something I'd like to level at uh, Mr. Hoyk um, mm. 
Throw he says he wanted us to like review some films, get some sort of outside perspective. Did we recommend anything to you, or were you <laughs> so well viewed this year that we like we were just trailing behind? That's like, entirely were our choices so 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 quotidian to you, so pedestrian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surely, because I thought I had a couple weird ones on my list. I know I had some ah. popular ones too. I chose Oppenheimer, but uh, yeah, you did. But I also chose the film like you know Divinity. Yeah, there's some some yeah you had some choices you had some there. proper weird ones on on your list. I, mine, I, I look back at mine and I'm like, God, I'm such I'm I'm so mainstream. <laughs> what happened to me? My God. Um, Although uh, they they don't do this anymore on hmm. uh, Rotten Tomatoes, but What's there that? was a while when uh, you as a critic could log on to your like input portal like you could mm. put input your own reviews and they would show how often you agreed with the tom- the tomato meter they still kind of like do that they don't give you like do a that, perc- right. I, don't, I don't think they give you a percentage but you can like at the, least it would say like at the top at. you agree with the tomato meter 75 percent of the time it's like okay that, so you oh, can I'm kind gonna... of gauge your own mainstreamness yeah it looks like they don't they don't have that like at the top of your author page anymore i think metacritic might though um, okay. but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to look at that number and, and obviously I wouldn't adjust my opinion accordingly, but I would say to myself, ah, oh, am I, do I really, am I really with the majority 60% of the time? Uh, I thought it was such a rebel. <laughs> uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that there's, there's way too much cinema for any one person to see. Uh, in a year, even if it's your job, that's how much there is. When you consider yeah. international cinema, when you consider straight to video and streaming, uh, f- festivals, movies that might not even get released elsewhere, there's just there's just so much. We're gonna miss something, and and this is also one of the reasons why. And it, it always makes me feel, you know, warms my heart to know that people come back to us and they subscribe to us and they listen to us uh, regularly. But this is why we have so many film critics. This is why, you know, the the job can't go away, nor can it really be minimized very much, because the the simple task of seeking out all these new movies, writing about them, telling the world about them, raising awareness of the ones that are good, championing the ones that deserve a champion, uh, uh, you know, speaking truth to power when the popular ones suck... Uh, that, that, that a lot of people need to contribute in order for that to be truly valuable, I think. And that takes time, and that takes effort, and no one of us can do it all. So yeah. well, to have, I'll, to have someone like this. Mark to help us guide the way and like actually contribute to us you know, being able to do better is very heartwarming. And again, I cannot thank you enough. It, it, it's, it's very, very heartwarming. Nice. Although, yeah. I, in, in our defense, I do want to say, and, and I do believe this, that a, a better way to be a better critic is mm. to also just live a bigger life, yes, do things true. that aren't movies every once in a while, go Very outside, true. go on hikes, read old books, spend mm. time with people, have rich meals, you know, really gain some life experience. Mm-hmm. So you have some context with which to write those movies other than just the movies themselves. Yeah. So falling down on reviews sometimes is being done in the service of trying to enrich yourself as a person. Uh, so that's true. That's true. I, I, as, I have as a much whole as mental we like health to be, journey that I'm on. Yeah. Yeah. As, as much as we like to uh, try to keep up with everything, you know, sometimes it's, it's not practical and sometimes it's not even wise, but I always want to see more and uh, having access to the Lumiere is definitely going to do that. 
Yeah, I'm very excited about this. So Mark, <clears throat> thank you again. And seriously, everybody, if you're not following Mark on the social medias, if you're it's seriously just wherever you can find Mark, support Mark, because, uh, well, he's a bit of an inspiration, if you ask me. <laughs> um, all right, I guess we should move on. Uh, Whitney, you have access to the emails. I, I do have some emails here in front of me. And so, I um, encourage you uh, to read um, some. <laughs> Indeed, I will. Uh, here's our first email. It comes from Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. As of this letter, I am preparing for the final semester of my bachelor's degree in creative writing. As I complete the program, I'm looking to rejuvenate my movie blog that I had started eight years ago and stopped after about six months. I think we all have one of those. Oh, yeah. Uh, In my last letter, you guys addressed a few... you guys addressed a few months ago was about finding Christian themes in filmed and Whitney recommended a hidden life, which mm-hmm. I still have yet to see, but it got me excited about searching for themes and ties to scripture in various forms of media, including films. Mm-hmm. One of my best writings for my schooling that I enjoyed writing was a movie review for the anime film. One piece film red. Oh, one piece. Aren't there like 150 one piece movies? There's, like there's, there's, just... there's a gigantic ongoing manga series and there's so much, there's so much anime out there that it's one of those things where I just, I literally don't know where to begin. Cause if I yeah. start at the beginning, uh, I'll, I'll never finish it. So I just, I don't, I, I need someone to guide me through it, but yeah, it's enormously popular. Uh, it and has been for Jesus. Like 20 years, 20, 30 I mean, years in America, at least 10 or 15. Yeah. Probably more. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's just a monster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but I haven't seen this movie, and I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a little One Piece here and there. I've just kind of stumbled upon it, but I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm no, I'm, I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert or even truly passingly familiar. But it's about uh, pirates and, and, or something. That's 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 what. Yeah, I Yeah, pirates and this like kooky guy wants to be the pirate king, something like that. And I think he's um, stretchy. Anyway, he. I reviewed the film itself and tied it into scripture, focusing on the antagonist of the film as well as bringing up the musical structure it used. I got an A on the assignment. Well done. Uh, Along with the feedback from my professor of, quote, make sure not to confuse the reader by trying to summarize too much of the anime within your review. Wise words. Uh, Mm. How would you two approach this feedback? While my target audience is fans of One Piece and Christians, how would I write or structure future reviews of existing IP so I can prepare those unaware of the source material for quirky characters and action without taking time away from the review and scripture reflection? Thank you both so much for all the insight you provide. I hope to get a blog revved back up as well as to write to you guys more as I go on this journey. I also hope to become a Patreon member for you as well in 2024 since you both have given us great content for years coming from a 27 year old Minnesotan who remembers writing to you about the evolution of war films when you started out your podcasts on the Schmoes No Network. Oh, wow. uh, yours truly, Andrew. Andrew, um, thank you so much for writing. Um, yeah, that's um, that's a question film critics deal with every, like literally every day. Yeah, um, yeah. Y- you'll find that critics who spend a lot of time summarizing a plot aren't doing a lot of reviewing. Yeah. And there are ways to describe even the most complex plots in a sentence or two, mm-hmm. and it's also wise not to lead with it. Oh, if um, you can avoid it, yeah. Yeah, yeah start that at all. just like they taught you in high school, you know, start with a thesis, start with an opening, give some a little bit of context, then get into the review. And once you've sort of talked about maybe the filmmaker, talked about the context of the film, talked about the genre, however, you know, whatever your angle was, yeah, your, your way into the yeah. movie, yeah. Uh, then you can give a very brief plot synopsis. Uh, 
And it's important to remember that when you're writing a review, the plot synopsis is not what readers are there for. They don't need a summation of the film. They just need a little bit of context that you can write about so that they know where you stand and like what this film is about generally. But don't agonize over including a lot of details. Oh, yeah. Uh, If there's something significant that comes up, especially something as long and complex like One Piece, Mm -hmm. you can say, oh, and this character who, you know, briefly dated pirate person in previous episode. Like, Mm -hmm. you can treat it like a footnote. You can even put it in a parenthetical. Um, Yeah, it's it's tempting to get into details because you want to delve into those details. But unless you're writing a really like a, a 20 to 50 page essay, you probably don't need to get into a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I mostly agree with Whitney here. And I noticed and I, this is not me saying Whitney's wrong about anything. It's just different critics have different styles, yeah. different approaches, different tastes when it comes to criticism in general. Um, I, I think there are exceptions to all the rules that he laid out. I've seen uh, reviews oh, that actually start with the plot synopsis, but that's relevant. That's really important. That grabs you because we need you to understand what the movie is in order to provide context. The plot synopsis is kind of, again, it shouldn't take too long, at least not unless, again, you're doing a scholarly essay or something. Um, or if that's the whole point, you're walking someone through every single bit of it. Uh, But it's kind of vital because you want people to get the gist of it, but you also need to understand that not everybody, like some of these movies will be stuff that I think everyone at least has kind of got the gist. If it's a Batman movie, you probably don't need to go into a great detail about who Batman is. But if it's an indie, if it's a foreign film, it's an original film of any kind, uh, this might actually be important to a reader because otherwise they don't know what's going on or why they should care. So that is a big part of it. But when you're dealing with, uh, I'll get to my comment about how to sort of mitigate that in a second. But when you're dealing with media that has a huge backstory, whether it's uh, One Piece or, you know, whatever comic books that you're reading or, you know, a a long ongoing TV show, um, you have to be careful not to get caught up in the backstory. Because there's the people who know the backstory know it, and the people who need the backstory would be starting here. So you need to focus on, if you're going to dive in the deep end, here's what's going on in the movie, the show, whatever you're reviewing, and here's just what you need in order to catch up. You know, there is a reason why when you're watching a TV show, the previously on segment at the beginning is usually no longer than 30 seconds. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. it's a lot shorter than that. They, it's just the biggest bullet points that the writer, filmmaker, whatever, assumes that you know in order to jump in. But you have to treat every movie at least on some level like somebody would be coming into this for the first time. Because And, and Ebert uh, talks about this a lot. Uh, he would talk about how film reviews... Aren't, shouldn't just be written for people who have seen the film or are interested in the film. You should be able to read a review and have no knowledge of the film or no interest of the film and still feel like you understand what's going on uh, with the film in terms of its quality, what's interesting about it, what the general story is, in order to uh, justify glancing at it. Uh, mm. So I, I think it's important to include enough of the plot to ground the reader 
and make sure that they don't feel lost and that what you're critiquing isn't abstract. I can wrap my head around it. I can see the basic narrative in my head. Uh, yeah. I, I find this te- usually takes the form of, much like the movie, introducing the characters and their world, getting quickly to the inciting incident, and then this happens, and that's what sets the story in motion, and then kind of just giving them the gist of what would be what was often called the fun and games in Act 2. Hmm. You know, Ferris Bueller uh, uh, wakes up sick one morning. His parents say he should stay home from school, but it turns out he's faking it. He uh, gets his two uh, friends out of school, and they go on a series of madcap adventures while trying to avoid Dean Rooney, who is trying to get them in trouble. That's all you need mm-hmm. for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's that's You, you could go into more detail yeah. when you want to talk about detailed scenes, but that's probably enough to get someone who's never seen the movie to understand what the movie is like, what it feels like, what the entertainment value is, why we're here today, <coughs> and then you can go into more detail or you can even go on a macro level and talk about it on a broader in a broader context. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a good guidepost... Um... There are a lot of. Uh, I was very fond of a video series I found online once called Angry a- from on a website called Angry Alien, and they just did animated shorts that were thirty seconds long, and they s- summed up movie plots in thirty yeah. seconds. Yeah. Uh, you can fit a story into thirty seconds. Uh, you know, it's all in the telling. It doesn't take a whole movie to tell a story. It takes about thirty yeah. seconds to tell yeah. a story. Yeah, Give uh, the gist uh, of it anyway. Yeah. Another good guidepost, and this is something that I'm not sure a lot of kids have access to anymore, Hmm. but uh, like the Leonard Maltin guides. Yes. Or uh, those little capsulized reviews that you could get in these like huge fat books at your local blockbuster. Surely some of those are still around if you can find an old one on eBay. I'm sure Uh, you can. Or or a used bookstore. I'm sure they have a bunch of them. Yeah. And it it doesn't have to be new. You can get an old back issue that's, Mm -hmm. you know, 20, 30 years old and you'll still be good. Yeah. Uh, And just thumb through those. It's a brief synopsis, it's a brief review, it's maybe two sentences, and it is expert in summing up what the film experience is in this tiny little amount of space. Yeah. And once you've done that, then you're probably going to be a better better equipped to start uh, writing reviews, writing like plots into reviews. Uh, if you've ever read my criticism, whether it was on The Wrap or The Film Verdict or wherever, uh, you've probably noticed that brevity isn't my thing. <laughs> like it's 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 not it's not what I lean towards, and I and I sometimes struggle with that, and sometimes I read my reviews after they've poured out of me, and I say to myself, that probably should have been shorter. But I always have a lot to say. But brevity is an extremely useful skill for a writer to be able to describe something, uh, get into the meaning of something as quickly as possible and as concisely as possible in order to. Uh, really just inject what you have to say into your reader's brain uh, before they even notice that you've done it. Um, There are ways that I've discovered to take, when you're doing a full-form review, when you're not doing a blurb, to take the plot synopsis, the description, whatever you want to call it, and hide it. It's in there, but you don't want to spend more. You definitely don't want to spend more than two paragraphs on it. One, if you can, if you can manage it. Uh, but oftentimes, it's basically, and then this happens, and this happens. It's, it's boring. What I recommend as an exercise, and maybe this won't work for you, but it works for me. Find a way to critique a movie as you're giving it a synopsis. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. like, don't just say what happens. It's okay to comment on how good it is, the thing that is happening, or how formulaic that is. Like, oh, here we go again. We've seen this before, that kind of thing, if that's what you're criticizing. Yeah, um, a plot it, point straight of other movie, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and that way, you're taking a part of it that should be just kind of formulaic and functional, and you're telling it through... It's like you're telling someone about this movie at a party. And they say, oh, what's that? I don't know what that's about. You try, try to make it a little bit more conversational. And that way you can take this part of the review that is often just a, 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 just an anchor, just mooring the, 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 the review down, just keeping it in place. Uh, and you can make it a little bit more free-flowing, a little bit more natural, and make it something that people feel like it's necessary to read. I'm not going to miss a paragraph of this because every paragraph of this is commentary. Every paragraph of this has ideas, thoughts, perspective. It's it's a complete piece. Uh, one piece. There you go. Hey, you. look at you. Hey. Yeah, it took him a second, but when he, when he got on the trolley. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that helps. Uh, f- uh, film criticism is kind of hard to to if you don't actually care <laughs> about how to write film <laughs> reviews this might be a very boring conversation but it's stuff we think about constantly because we have yeah, to do no, it I mean, constantly it's the, that's that's our line yeah i got yeah. I got a couple coming up i gotta think about that um here's a letter from yvonne hello yvonne hi yvonne uh dear bibs and whitney yvonne from venezuela writing again hello, hello. Yvonne from venezuela uh, i recently watched napoleon and it gave me mixed fe- I'm guessing the Ridley Scott version and it Probably. gave me mixed feelings on the grounds that is quite cinematic and full of spectacle but very disjointed superficial and poorly paced mm. yeah that sums it up pretty well uh, one other thing stood out to me above others it's the casting of the two protagonists I love Vanessa Kirby and Joaquin Phoenix is a tremendous actor but many voices on live and have pointed out and I realized the same thing while watching that Josephine is supposed to be six years older than Napoleon but Kirby is 14 years younger than Phoenix Having the age difference reversed changes the dynamic of their relationship, and the dialogue had to be tweaked because saying that Josephine was too old to conceive wouldn't make sense. Many have pointed out that this is a continuation of a Hollywood practice of pairing younger women with older men, plus younger women being cast as characters that are 10 years older than them. A critic on TikTok used the example of Jennifer Lawrence, who is 33, being paired with Bradley Cooper, who is 49, in uh, in SLP. What's SLP? Uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Oh, Silver Linings, okay. Yeah, and Kristen Bale, who is... F- who is 49 in American Hustle. Uh, I would add that Edgar Ramirez, 46, in Joy, he is her ex-husband. These films were made while Lawrence was still playing a teenager in The Hunger Games. I would like to know your opinion on this matter, if you feel this affects Napoleon in any way, and its impact in films in general. Best regards, Yvonne. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a, a rather stubborn old Hollywood tradition, isn't it? This, yeah, it's very um, pervasive, ca- yeah. Casting of uh, younger ingenues against uh, aging male stars. Uh, I watched a movie just last night called Picnic from 1955. Oh, yeah. Where um stars William Holden, who is supposed to be this, like, charmer of all the local women. Um, mm. He's kind of a dunderhead, but everybody thinks he's hot because he's always parading around with his shirt off. And he looks like he's 50. Like he, oh, yeah. He's not. He's, he's actually he's, younger than that when he made the movie. He was 37 when he made the movie. Yeah. Uh, and he looks he looks at least like he's in his his 40s. He's supposed to be a guy who like went to college, was kind of a hellraiser and then spent a few years outside of college uh, and uh, you never really made something himself. And now he's trying to like settle down and like, you know, calm his wild oats, if you will. Uh, but 
but it's never convincing because he looks too damn old. And even William Holden apparently thought he looked too old and that he was too old for that role. He was right. Mm. Um, <laughs> there is, there is, I, I think that there's been a lot of writing about this, a lot of speculation about this. Um, and it's, it's a well-established issue in the industry. I think a lot of this comes from people who, whether it's conscious or subconscious, view men, especially heterosexual men, as the the baseline target demo, as if that's normal. Yeah. And they're going to want, theoretically, uh, these heterosexual men who are in a target demo, especially white heterosexual men, uh, to... Look up at the screen, A, see themselves. You'll notice that, again, white heterosexual man tends to be the default main character in most media. Uh, it's getting yeah. better, but still. Um, and they're going to want to see something in their life that is idealized. They're going to want to go on a cool adventure. They're going to want to uh, ultimately, and this is a subplot that is in almost every movie, get the girl. There's a romantic subplot in almost every movie if it's not the A plot even if it makes no yeah. sense for it to be there. And as a result, who would uh, a man want to end up with? Well, someone who is conventionally uh, attractive based on the social or, or, or cultural mores of the day, sure. And mm -hmm. someone who, especially if they are older, is younger because then, it, I, I don't know, I guess it feels like a conquest or something. It's weird. And let's be honest here, that's just bullshit that's just uh, bullshit but as a fundamental concept that's when I mean, you can have a story about someone who's what people with an age range mm. but the, the fact that this happens so much i mean yeah, look at most and, tom and, cruise movies most like like yeah, it's, how much how much younger his his uh, co-stars tend to be in those yeah. movies uh you know it's it is partly a reflection on reality. I know more uh, couples where the, the male is older than the female and uh, mm. mixed gender couples like that. Um, but, uh, and again, I think it's just because that's socially I, uh, acceptable. I, and I think it's, it's, yeah, it's considered kind of socially acceptable. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but it happens so often in movies that, you know, it doesn't really reflect actual life anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I also know that this concern about age gaps in uh, on-screen relationships uh, was intensified during uh, the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. uh, kind of recently in the last couple of years, because people started to get really, really aware of how often men are depicted with uh, older men are depicted with younger women on screen, mm -hmm. and how there is kind of an exploitive. Uh, uh, predatory elements to that kind of relationship. An older man is going to have more more clout, more power in the relationship, whereas the woman is going to be sort of sort of helpless. That's not always the way it's depicted in these no. movies, no, but, it, um, but that's enough. that's the yeah. sense we get when there's an age gap between the actors. So we started to focus very intensely on that. Um, part of it is because we are aware of the ages of the actors. Um, there's also just movie magic. You can cast whoever you like in these parts. I know Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix was much older than Napoleon was during you know, the certain scenes in, in his life. Right. Um, uh, remember when Willem and, Dafoe was in uh, At Eternity's Gate and he like was already like 15 years older than Van Gogh was when he died? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or something like that. But he was older yeah. than the character he was playing was when he died. And he was a great 
it was a great role, but it wasn't necessarily an accurate portrayal of perhaps what Van Gogh looked mm. like, I guess. Um, yeah. So a, a lot of it is falling into rather unfortunate and frustratingly persistent trends mm. in Hollywood casting that likes to uh, put older men and younger women on screen together. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, anyway, there, there's it's, another it's, angle it's frustrating. It's frustrating. There's uh-huh. another angle to this, which I think is important to talk about as well. And it, it's that the entertainment industry doesn't treat women very well as a matter of course. But they're, the way that they treat women as they age, just and this is in a general way, there are exceptions to this rule. I'm not saying everyone's equally guilty of it, but in a general way. People are, you, you may be a child actor, but once, like, you could, when you're in your 20s, you're an ingenue. Yeah. You know, you're, you're a movie star. And then as you get older, there stop being roles for women in their 30s as much as there are for men in their 30s. Again, this is getting slightly better, but it's unfortunately generally true. And I forget what movie it was. There was someone who was talking about how you're, you're either, you're a romantic lead and then there's a period where you don't get any work, and then you're a district attorney. Right. Like, that's that's the thing. You're either romantic or you're past romance, and now you're you're hardened. Uh, or, or you're playing yeah. a mom now. And... Uh, what, what was that, what's that the sucks. line from uh, the, fir- the First Wives Club? It's like, there's only three ages for I women in Hollywood. I think that's what I'm quoting, like, actually. Yeah. It, you know, it's, yeah. It was, it was, it's like, you're a babe, mom, or driving Miss Daisy. Like, the, those are the three yeah. ages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's fucked up. And it's so, uh, 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 it's so ingrained that I think some people don't even realize that they're doing it. In the case of yeah. Napoleon, like, Vanessa Kirby is an excellent actor. I happen to think she was a bit miscast in that role. Um... In fact, I think here's a good example. Of this. Here's this is one where it's not romantic, but they're still they're still doing it. Uh, I, I think it's Vanessa Kirby. Wasn't Vanessa Kirby also in Hobbs and Shaw? Oh yeah, she was. Um, she was, Jason, uh, she was Jason Statham's younger sister, but they're uh, like twenty years apart or something. Yeah, well, it's, it's not that if she was just his younger sister, that would be fine. But we also have flashbacks of them growing up together when they were both kids. Hmm. Jason Statham's like fifty around there like she's like about 20 years younger than him so what they are doing is by equating through flashback like her age with his age they're de-aging jason statham to make him look younger and more virile or powerful or whatever you want to call it uh and so casting her as someone who is his age equal, it doesn't age her up; it ages him down. They did this in Venom: uh, Let There Be Carnage as well, when uh, Woody Harrelson and I think it was Naomi Harris in that one. Yeah, it was uh, Naomi Harris who played yeah, Shriek. Yeah, the, yeah like it, it, they they implied that Woody Harrelson's character is significantly younger than Woody Harrelson. In fact, they think they even gave his age, and it's just sort of like, sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was in your contract or what, but whatever you say, sure. You you you're forty. Sure, knock yourself out. <laughs> they they even said it's like, oh, and he was born in 1996. It's like I was I was watching his movies. He'd be younger in than me. You know, yeah. What are we even doing here? Like there there so much of movies and the way they portray people has to do with ego, has to do with creating personas that the industry can sell, and well, yeah, also selling a certain fantasy. That is yeah. a, one of the reasons we do go to the movies. True, a lot of the time, yeah. But also, you got to remember, selling a fantasy 
isn't necessarily the job of art necessarily. It is the job, the fundamental job of advertising. Yeah. yeah. It, and it could be a mundane fantasy. It's a fantasy of, oh, finally, I found a car that is actually like affordable and, uh, and, and has all the features that I need. Uh, uh, that's great. That's a fantasy. That's just solving a problem. But a lot of the times they're also trying to sell you on that these you know, vehicles or these whatever, they are an adventure. You know, you're not just drinking a beer. You're drinking a beer on the perfect beach. <laughs> so when we create these personas for our actors, male, female, non-binary, any of them, we're trying generally to create a sense of glamour. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to manipulate the way that we see those performers in order to sell you something, even if that thing is just the movie uh, yeah. or the, or that performer for future films. Um, so it's a whole rich tapestry of I kind of see where you're coming from on some of that, but most of it is just total bullshit. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's 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 frustrating and once you notice it you kind of can't unnotice it the bell has been rung yeah yeah well yeah. And, and then you start to find some really horrible examples of mm. older men who are maybe directing themselves in movies and mm -hmm. they get to choose their own romantic partners um i, I you know woody allen comes right to mind oh, but yeah. um I'm also thinking of, you know, like Adam Sandler. He chooses like the most attractive actresses in Hollywood and casts them as his wives. It's like he, he's doing that as a favor to himself. You know, he's trying to make himself look good. He gets to uh, work with these, you know, really beautiful actresses. Clearly, he's doing this like as, as a little favor. And the thing is, is that uh, you can argue that he's working with talented people and he's giving them work and that, mm. and that is good. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know. I don't know if anyone went to see Jack and Jill because Katie Holmes was in it. Right. You know, like you, you can hire anyone who fits sort of the role uh, for that. And you're making specific choices. And again, no, no shade to Katie Holmes. I actually think she's a very good actor, but it it's one of those things where you could choose to cast anybody. And the fact that you make con these consistent choices yeah, is telling. Yeah. It's telling. Anyway, um, uh, hopefully that, that, that addresses the issue a little bit, but it's a huge can of worms and a lot of people have written more elegantly about it than we have from, from experience even. Yeah. Like and yeah, of, we're just sort of like yeah. spitballing extemporaneously. Yeah. I, if I were to sit and write, I'd probably have be a little bit more articulate on the issue. Yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Um, anyway, another letter. Yes. Uh, this is a letter from Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Um, hello, critically acclaimed. Longtime caller, first-time listener. Yay. I love it. Uh, I've been really enjoying your Thank Godzilla It's Friday series, and I was wondering if, when that series finally reaches a conclusion, which is coming up pretty pretty quickly, uh, if you have any plans to uh, continue with offering one free show, the comp that completionist attitude of reviewing all movies of a certain category, as with Only the Best or All Our Yesterdays. Uh, all the best, Jesse. Um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do something. We've, we've we've we haven't to... decided. We've had a few a few conversations about what we might want to do, but we haven't chosen anything. Yet. No, we love completionist deep dives. We love being able to uh, uh, 
really not just not just for you but also for us just completely explore as much as we can uh, a filmmaker or a series or an era or or anything like that and yeah a lot of our podcasts uh, historically have been that on our patreon page we have podcasts where we reviewed every single adam west batman that was a that was a long journey fun but a long journey uh and and beyond so we will probably do something like that we've had conversations it's been a few months but we've had conversations about what we would do after thank godzilla it's friday is over which i think we timed it out it'll probably be sometime around june um but we definitely have a that, that few sounds about ideas. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we definitely have a few ideas uh, uh, for some additional projects, bringing back maybe some old stuff. Um, but Whitney and I are, you know, we we believe that being a film critic involves doing the work. And it's not <laughs> just it, it's not it shouldn't be passive. It should actually be like engaged in research and hopefully making that research, making that history exciting for other people. So I'm sure we're going to do something else in that vein. We've talked about a few different ideas of varying length. Like this would be a 12 episode deep dive, or this would be a 100 episode deep dive or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out, but yeah, we'll, we'll do something else along those lines. If not right away, then probably pretty soon after Godzilla's over. I mean, we, we, we can't not. We're just kind of weird obsessives no. that way. We, we we say to ourselves, oh, we're never doing this again. This was so much work. And then I came up with, I think it was I came up with Thank Godzilla, it's Friday. And you were like, yeah, we got to do that. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. It's going to start. It's happening again. We, 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 Every we, time we, they think we're out, they pull us back in. We, we can't help ourselves. This is what we love doing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but thank you for thank you for your interest and thank you for wanting to see more and yeah you'll you'll get more okay barring yeah, yeah. barring barring unforeseen tragedy you'll get more we, we're 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 in this for the long haul all right uh, oh sorry bump bump my mic there no um, here is another letter here's a letter from Luke hello Luke hi Luke uh, Bibbs and Whitney I would like for the two of you to discuss what it means for a movie to quote hold up. Or in other mm. words, stand the test of time. I recently watched a movie called Major Pain, starring Damon Wayans with my wife and kids. I first watched this in high school and really liked it. Then I watched it in college and thought it was hilarious and was constantly quoting it with my friends. When my kids got to the age they could understand the humor, I nervously sat them down and pushed play, having not seen it in over a decade. We had to go back and rewatch the beginning because we were laughing so hard and it was a relief. I remembered it being funny and I desperately wanted it to still be funny. I can now say that this movie holds up in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, when a film holds up, how does it stand the test of time? Well, that's a big question. I'm sure this can be approached from different angles, but I would love to hear your brilliant thoughts on the matter from forever a giant wolf man. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> P.S. Bibbs, I hope therapy is helping. We are rooting for you. Thank you. That's very nice of you. I appreciate that. And I'm working on it. And mental health is an ongoing thing for most of us. So mm. um, thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Um, that's a great question, actually, because it's something that we talk about a lot. And I think we kind of take it for granted. And we don't always remember to go back and sort of reestablish the parameters. Uh, when yeah. we say a movie, I'm going to give it a general way, and then I'm sure we both have a lot of ideas about what this means, because it's a big can of worms. Uh, but when we say a movie holds up or stands the test of time, which aren't exactly the same thing, but basically the same thing, um, what we're saying is that a movie that is considered great, or at least good, entertaining, 
uh, that came out long enough ago that one of a couple of things have happened, if not more. Either multiple generations have passed and the world as we know it has changed dramatically since the context in which the movie originally came out and elements of the film, be it... Uh, practical things like visual effects or acting styles uh, or, or even just stylistic things which are no longer in fashion uh, may now date the movie and make it seem more like a period piece than it was when mm. it originally came out. This doesn't necessarily hurt the film. In fact, this can actually help it in some cases, but it may not have been noticeable at the time and now we're looking at it through a different lens. And also, a lot of films have subject matter or social attitudes or... Uh, characters doing things that were considered acceptable at the time that are not now or at the very least yeah. movie filmmakers thought they would be it would be acceptable to show them uh and so while we may or may not appreciate whether or not the movie is good looking at it now we look at it and say oh that's actually in such poor taste that i can't enjoy the movie yeah yeah and we've run into this a bunch of times uh, i think the most famous example a movie that i think pretty much everyone has soured on is revenge of the nerds Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent choice as an example for this sort of thing. Yeah. It was hugely popular. It was this, it was a college comedy it was riding on the wave of Animal House, another movie that has an age grade, if you ask me. Um, but it, it was seen at the time as this heroic underdog story about nerds, people who were being bullied at the time uh, and probably still are. But, you know, at the time it was the cliche. Nerds were being bullied in movies, uh, rising up against their uh, jock athlete oppressors and uh -huh. becoming the heroes of their school and in a vacuum that sounds like a good idea but in practice they do this through sex crimes yeah through the abuse of women That's, yeah repeatedly in, over and over in order again. to in order to uh, assert themselves they have to prove their their masculine wiles uh and in order to do that, they have to be as toxically masculine as possible. A, a lot so, of the, yeah, they, a, they commit sex crimes. A lot of the characters in that movie, <laughs> in, in a just universe, would be in prison at the end of that movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so th this was seen as cute to, again, the target demo, which, they again, I assume they thought was straight white men who thought sex crimes could be entertaining, I suppose. Uh, but now we look at it and, even, and it, it just, it's just gross. It's deeply yeah. unpleasant. It's not intended to be deeply unpleasant, but we've grown as a society past this film. And thank yeah, God for that. There's a few things that I think are still uh, weirdly admirable about Revenge of the Nerds for however mm. gross it really is. Um, there's a queer character in uh, Revenge of the Nerds hmm, yeah. who is – he's a stereotype. He's played for laughs. He mm -hmm. has you know, a lot of like mincing mannerisms that you'd see in a lot of uh, queer characters at the time. But he himself, the character, is not punished yep. or derided. And in fact, he's like a welcome part of the team and is actually seen as very heroic by the end. Which is so very, there's a few things – Yeah, that's atypical uh, of the era, sadly. Yeah, so there's yeah, a few yeah, things that yeah. you know, like kind of – like it's kind of doing right, but it's difficult to overlook all of this, like multiple acts of sexual assault that go on in that movie. Um, yeah, that doesn't really hold the test of time. That's, I think what we're really getting at here is something you can watch in any era without re necessarily requiring a lot of historic context. 
Mm, Sometimes knowing yeah. the context will enhance the uh, the experience of the film. You can see what a filmmaker is doing for the first time or the kinds of storytelling uh, tropes or characters that hadn't appeared in films before. Mm-hmm. Um, but not knowing that would still... Uh, wouldn't ruin the film. It would still ma- yeah. still be enjoyable to watch even without that information. And I think that's what people mean when a film uh, holds up or stands the test of time. Uh, you don't need to sort of explain it out. There's no pretense. Yeah. No uh, apologies need to be made up front. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think that something like The Wizard of Oz is an excellent example of this. That mm-hmm. film came out in 1939. You could watch it today and it's still fresh and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um Jaws doesn't require a lot of explanation. You can probably watch uh, scenes from Jaws and understand, you know, the thrill of it. In fact, I think that's true of a lot of Spielberg because he dictated a lot of uh, sort of modern blockbuster language. So there are exceptions to that. There's stuff that really doesn't hold up in 1941. Temple of Doom uh, was always pretty gross, Um, but mostly, yeah, mostly. Yeah, Um, there's, there's. I was, I was about to say. um, Oh, I just had a point. It was really relevant, and everyone's going to say, "Good for you, Bibbs. You're 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 so you're so wise." Um, no, no apologies up front. Yeah, you know, I keep talking because I, I'll, I'll maybe I'll find it again because it was no. <laughs> it was relevant. It was relevant. Well, uh, so I, I I haven't seen the film Major Pain, um, yeah. but you know, if if the slapstick is just sort of universal film slapstick, if it's a mm-hmm. comedy that makes you laugh, and it's derived from like ancient comedy traditions. Mm-hmm then sure, maybe it still holds up. Maybe that's that's one that you can watch ad infinitum. I remember what I was going to say, because there's also another element of movies that don't... Maybe they hold up, but they don't stand the test of time very well. And these are often the films that introduce something that other movies would not only copy or rip off, but would later perfect. And yeah, then you watch the original... Yeah, and the he founders. Watched, yeah, and then you watch the original, and he goes, "Oh, this doesn't really seem that special." And what you don't realize is that at the time, this was totally fresh. But watching it now, after we've seen it copied over and over again, and you see this a lot, especially when it's cross mediums, like John Carter is a good example of this. The story that John Carter is based on, Princess of Mars, was enormously influential on so much of the popular culture that we now take for granted: um, Superman, Star Wars. Uh, and yet, by the time they finally got around to turning John Carter into a movie, so many other stories had taken its groundwork and built on top of it that just looking at the foundation no longer made much of an impact. So yeah, that's yeah. a story. The movie itself is relatively new, and I actually think it's it's not a bad movie, but it's one of the ones where it just... it The story of John Carter has been somewhat outshined by the stuff that ripped it off. And that's unfortunate in some regards. But sometimes, though, they hold up great. Uh, If you ever watch the silent movie uh, The Mark of Zorro with Douglas Fairbanks Sr., which is a movie that kind of, as we know it, codified the superhero genre, especially in film, uh, that movie is still gangbusters. That movie is still very, very excellent. There's still great stunts. The story really sings. Do yourself a favor... Watch The Mark of Zorro from 1920 back-to-back with Batman Begins and notice that they're the same <laughs> film. Christopher Nolan doesn't have story, to change yeah, yeah. a lot. Like, and, and even, like, the weird details. Like, oh, yes, uh, Bruce Wayne, he's a bit of... He's, he's you know, an out-of-touch dandy who just buys things and everybody thinks so little of him and that's how he can get away with being a, a hero in a black cape. That was all the way... That, that's, like, 100 years old. <laughs> 
already. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it can still work. It can still be good. But sometimes sometimes they don't. Sometimes they are outshadowed uh, uh, by time. There, it is also worth noting that um, withstanding the test of time isn't necessarily a movie's job. It's okay if they become like sort of mired in the time that they were made and they become a period well, piece or a bit is... of an antique because th- that is valuable. Yeah, and it's of well, itself. And, and also, you know? that, that's also why we we say things like all art is political. Yeah, no film ever made uh, will very knowledgeably try to predict the social mores of the future. It's really rare. Yeah, that something kind of holds our values that was made you know, 30, 40, 60, a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be birthed of the worlds that gave birth to it. it. It had to come from the society that made it that that's why it's political. It, it reflects the attitudes of the time. Every film is going to be dated in yeah. some way because it came out of the time it came out. It'll be a period um, piece eventually. Even if it wasn't when it came yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it, it, and it goes through trends. There's going to be a movie that comes out uh, where uh, it maybe doesn't reflect well on the present, but then catches up with some sort of future thing that the filmmaker didn't necessarily intend. Yeah. It feels ahead of uh, sometimes its time. It will, yeah. Yeah, sometimes it'll be really topical when it comes out, fall out of favor, and then come back into favor. Yeah, um, Fritz the Cat is a good example of that, where it was really topical at the time, then everyone's like, oh, it's this relic of the 1970s, and then I watched it for the first time relatively recently after hearing, oh, it's a, it's a time capsule. And I'm watching it, I'm like, this feels weirdly fresh and currently relevant. And I think we came back around, unfortunately, in most regards, uh, to Fritz the Cat. There's a thing that uh, a lot of people try to trot out when we talk about uh, art or or even just history, uh, and that's historical context. Well, in the context of the time, this was considered normal, or this was considered socially acceptable, or this was just the style at the time. And... That should not be the end of the journey, because unfortunately, when you're only looking at it in a historical context, you're you're you run the risk of simply making excuses. Yeah, I believe and this is something that I've especially noticed a lot when we've uh, done our like super deep dives, like with you know old Star Trek or we've done our uh, our Oscars series where we watched every Best Picture nominee from the silent era up until the mid 50s now. And a lot of those movies I had seen, a lot of them were movies I hadn't. I, I am of the belief as a critic that it is a critic's job to not just talk about what's new and current and not just talk about the stuff that you love, but constantly reevaluate. Because sometimes... Yeah, go, go back a lot. Yeah. Uh, with, with a critical eye, yes. go back a lot. Uh, and I know that there are some people who have, like, their comfort watches, the movies they like to go sure. back to every once in a while, and it will stay in a certain context in their minds. And that's fine, and that's great. And mm-hmm. I don't want to take that experience from anybody. Um, I, I'm in my 40s, and I can still get a thrill from watching an episode of Tiny Toon Adventures, because I liked <laughs> it when I was 12. You know, that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's really, really important to, as time passes, and as you change, mm-hmm. and as you grow up as an audience member, to... Mm-hmm reevaluate those movies that you liked as a youth and uh, spend some time away from them for a little bit mm-hmm. and then go back and watch them and see if your attitude has changed about those movies. Right. Cause you, you might grow up and see that a movie that maybe you didn't think really connected with you now does based on where you are in your life. You may grow up and realize that a movie that you thought was really, really great now comes across as kind of shallow and immature because you are no longer shallow and immature yourself. Uh, you, you may go back in a movie that is considered classic and you realize, actually, this is really gross. 
Like we had that experience mm. when we were watching an American in Paris, which is this you know classic Gene Kelly movie. It won Best Picture, and the central romance is just vile. <laughs> like it's just completely unhealthy in like every conceivable way. It's really really gross, and it doesn't take away from the fact that the dancing is good, but it's harder to watch the film than you might think. No. So well, it's it's like um oh yeah. gosh um. I mean, I, I love Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, but mm-hmm. that Bojangles number in Springtime, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's, 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 hard. It's, it's hard to get through. Yeah. It's like some of the best dancing you'll ever see if you can get past the fact that he's in blackface. So, like, And again, you could argue at the time, if you really wanted to, well, you know, there were those were sequences that were in movies that was relatively common at the time. You could mm-hmm. say, like, oh, historical context. But you shouldn't stop there, and you shouldn't assume that what you know of historical context is the end of it, because believe it or not... There were objections to this kind of stuff at the time. Yeah, it's just that's important ob- to remember. Those objections aren't always as well cataloged, but they are there. There were protests for Birth of a Nation when it came out. There were protests yeah, uh, for, for people who said the Gone with the Wind is irresponsible when it came out. It's just that they were shouted down for so yeah, long. I'm... I would recommend that you go to uh, Movie Silently. That's um, a, a Twitter account. It's also a website yes. run by um, uh, her name is Fritzy, and or that's like her her numb to screen, I guess. Yeah, and um, she's brilliant. Yeah, and and she's brilliant. She does all these wonderful deep dives into the history of silent cinema, into uh, kind of debunking a lot of myths that are still spread in film schools mm-hmm. to this day yeah. about uh, what f- uh, silent film pioneered, how frequently it is ignored in terms of film history, mm-hmm. um, who was actually doing a lot of these technical pioneerings when uh, other films were getting credit for it. Yep. And uh, it, it was Fritzy who uh, wrote this big, long missive just debunking everything about Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. about like its importance at the time and how everybody really accepted it at the time. And it was the first film shown at the White House. All of these things are untrue. Yeah. It was a big hit, and it was a big hit because uh, a lot of racist people went to go see it. And yep. that's that. Yeah. People hated it at the time because it was so racist. Uh, so it's not just a product of its time. Uh, it's important to remember even that broad of a historical context. We're way off in the weeds. No, no, I, point, I, no I think this is entirely relevant because we're talking about what, how movies withstand the test of time and you need to understand what they were when they came out. My, my yeah. overall point is this, and I'm, I'm going to try to make it as concisely as possible. Um, if you look at an older film and you say to yourself, oh, historical context, A, make sure you get the full historical context because what you've heard may not be actually accurate. It's like when they say, like, oh, the the, uh, uh, the average life expectancy for so many centuries was, like, 40. And it's like, yeah, that's because the infant mortality rate was really high, and that skews the, 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 the metric. So it's actually people were mm. living longer than that, but as the, the average got changed because of factors that aren't always well articulated. I, that is off in the weeds. My point is this. If you're going to worry about historical context, consider all the historical context, not just the historical context that supports your pre-existing point of view. And secondly, do not stop at historical context because without using contemporary context, without saying to ourselves, what is this doing? How is this informing what we're doing today? How is this different from what we're doing today? And how have we either grown into this or grown away from this? That is vital criticism that is absolutely important because that's the purpose of history. It's not supposed to excuse the past. It's supposed to explain the present and help us prevent the mistakes of the past from being made in the future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Long rant. Um, 
Long rant. Uh, let's move on to another email. Yeah, we got time email for a couple from more. Dave, uh, from David. Hello, David. Hi, David. Um, hello. Hello. You asked about the tie-in marketing that came with the 1998 Godzilla movie. Yay! Uh, that, that, that was uh, our more one of our more recent uh, Thank Godzilla, It's Friday episodes. Yeah. Uh, and one of the big things for me was the single Deeper Underground by Jamiroquai. <laughs> <laughs> We kind of didn't talk about the soundtrack very much, actually, and it was a we, monster. We should have, because yeah. it was a huge soundtrack. It, it's one of the prime examples of great soundtrack to a terrible movie. Yeah. Um, but David says, I loved that song when it came out, and it was kind of big here in the UK, even reaching number one on our singles chart. The music video also got a lot of play as Godzilla burst out of the cinema screen, flooding the theater. JK danced to top the cinema seats as further carnage from the movie rained down around him. I don't know how much of a splash it made in the US, but I thought I'd share that with you. Uh, many thanks, David. The, um, the big song for yeah, the Godzilla hold on, sound- let me. I'm going to... Yeah. Hmm. Look up the Godzilla soundtrack because yeah. it had a, a lot the, of bangers the on it. The big song from the Godzilla soundtrack, the one that got like the most airplay, was um, the, the Puff Daddy did a song uh, that sampled Led Zeppelin, and this was at a time when Led Zeppelin didn't let you do that. Led yeah, Zeppelin yeah. was not in movies when Cameron Crowe wrote an entire scene just about. How great, uh, I think it's Stairway, was it Stairway? No, what was it? Uh, I think Stairway, in, right? It was Stairway in, to Heaven in, in, in Almost Famous? No, it's Tiny he, Dancer. No, 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 no. Tiny Dancer is later in the movie. It's it, There's a scene earlier on, it's in the director's cut, it's not in the original, it's not in the theatrical cut, where oh, okay. in order for the the main character in Almost Famous, who's a kid, he wants to be a music critic, uh, and he wants to go on the road with a band in order to write about them for Rolling Stone, but his mother doesn't trust rock and roll. She doesn't like rock and roll, she thinks it is uh, bad art and a corrupting influence on her child, and the, there's a scene in the, in the script, and they filmed it, where it's literally just... Mom, I'm going to prove to you that this is art. And they were going to, I think they were going to play all of Stairway to Heaven. Uh, like in the movie? In the movie. The whole thing. In the movie. I, I uh. think it was Stairway, but it was definitely Zeppelin. And then she was supposed to go, all right, fine. And <laughs> that's, that's a good bit. That's a good scene. It's kind of a daring choice to kind of stop the movie dead like that, just to listen to some great tunes, but it fits uh, 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 the story. But they said no to that. They said, I'm, you, you can't put this like in your movie. We won't give you the, the, the Led song. Zeppelin said no to Apparently, that. Apparently Led Zeppelin said no because they couldn't put it in the film. And I think even when they released like a director's cut or something, they had to just kind of like not play the song and like tell you at home, cue it up now or something like that. At least I heard that's what they did. I actually never saw uh, oh. <laughs> the, that, that, that untitled version, but I remember reading the script. And... That's how cagey Led Zeppelin was. Like when it, there's a special feature on um, the School of Rock DVD, because there's a bit in that movie where they do where they play the Immigrants song, which has since appeared in, in other films. It was in um, uh, yeah. David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, I think they even used it in Thor Ragnarok. Uh, yeah, but at the time Led Zeppelin wasn't doing this. There's a special feature on the DVD that they were doing the the big crowd scene at the end of school of rock where they play the the song that they wrote and it's a big heroic finale and they shot an extra bit that's just jack black in front of this huge audience uh 
saying, hey, Led Zeppelin, please let us use Immigrant Song. Come on, come on, tell them we want to play Immigrant Song. And everyone's like, yeah, give them Immigrant Song. A huge crowd begging Led Zeppelin to let him use Immigrant Song for a couple of seconds. And apparently Led Zeppelin relented, but because it's in there for like a couple of seconds. But Jeez. Yeah, yeah, they were really adamant. You said you were looking up the uh, Godzilla soundtrack. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it, it starts with um, uh, the Wallflowers cover of David Bowie's Heroes. Oh, that, oh, uh, that was a monster. Then, that was a monster. That was uh, I forgot that was from that soundtrack. It, I'm surprised it didn't lead with Come With Me, which was the Puff Daddy Jimmy yes. Page song. Yeah. Uh, th- track three was Deeper Underground by Jamiroquai. Mm. Uh, Rage Against the Machine, performing No Shelter. Uh, ben Folds 5, kind of coming out of the, the college kind of, rock corner kind of to perform a song called Air. Uh, if anybody remembers the band Days of the New. No. No, we uh, don't. No, nobody there's, remembers Days, days of the New. Days of the Old now. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a Michael Penn song. Mm-hmm. There's a Fuel song. Again, if you oh, remember yeah. the 90s, you remember Fuel. Fuel was, uh, uh, Fuel was on the Crow doing... 2 soundtrack, I think, as well. Yeah. Which was yeah. another great soundtrack, terrible movie. <laughs> the Crow City of Angels, amazing soundtrack. The movie is borderline unwatchable. It's so bad. Yeah, we got uh, Foo Fighters, Green Day, Silver Chair. Ooh, uh, <laughs> that here, takes me here's back. A band no, here, here's a band nobody remembers. If uh, anybody can uh, sing their favorite Fuzz Bubble song, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, Fuzz Bubble has kind of vanished into the '90s. Mm. Um, Joey Deluxe, David Arnold, and uh, David Arnold. Those are like I think bits of the score. Um, yeah. That, that, Silverchair, I think, is overdue for, I don't know about a comeback, but they had some really good singles. I feel like someone maybe, needs to maybe put those just in. A, a, re- a reconsideration. Let's relitigate Silverchair. Well, I, th- I think someone needs to just put, I think it was Tomorrow, like, just put that in a, in a movie. That's a cool song. I think you totally, that would be a hmm. great, like, opening credits bit to some TV show that's, like, sort of badass and set in the 90s. Um yeah, no, I like no, Silverchair a lot, actually. When, when we talk, now, I, I want our listeners to to be cognizant of the fact that when we talk about what's cool, we are white guys in our forties. That's true. And uh, what we say is like not definitive by any stretch. Oh, there's no definitive are, cool. That's that everyone's got a bubble no. when it comes to cool. It's a matter, a matter of how big it is, but you know, everyone's no, I, got a bubble I, when it comes to cool. Just re- remember what whatever uh, the best year in music is, whatever year you turn sixteen. So uh, Look, that's um, that, that's just an eternal truth. So for that, me, that 1994 is, is the best year uh, ever in all music. I guess for um, me it would be 1998. Which is that? See, one? you're wrong. It's not 1998. <laughs> 1998 sucks. Well, hold on, it's whatever. Yeah. It's whatever your silver chair came out in America because. I think they were an Australian band. Hang on a sec. Silverchair? Silverchair, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess they were Australian. You I was thinking they were from, like, tomorrow. the East Coast or something. Uh, tomorrow came out in 94. So, see, I'm, okay, I'm right. Okay, you know what? You, you, uh, but hold on. Tomorrow came out in 94, but the ba- the album Frog Stomp came out in 95. So. In, in the U.S. or in Australia? I don't even know anymore. Hang on. It was released in March 27th, 1995. Uh, it was recorded in nine days. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, in any case, the single preceded that album. Oh yeah, so. that happens a lot. These singles often, sometimes yeah. they come out with more than one before the album even comes out. Um, but yeah, the, the, talking about a Godzilla soundtrack, you know, we'll just get us off on a tear on just sort of the the wonderful, wild, hoary world of uh, movie soundtracks and just how big they were in the nineteen nineties. Yeah. There was there was a time when a movie could bomb, but the soundtrack was so popular it could actually recoup the movie's losses. Yeah, um, I got the hookup. Like, 
of memory serves. I got the like, hookup of Dead out. Man on yeah. Campus. Like, yeah. these movies were not hits. Oh. Uh, the Basketball Diaries, but the soundtracks were so huge mm-hmm. that they actually made their money back. So they were licensing all of these hip bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go back and get some of these soundtrack records. Soundtrack albums to them. would have sequels. Remember that? Like, with songs that weren't even in the movie. Oh, like Hackers 2, Hackers 3. Yeah, Romeo yeah. and Juliet. Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I think that had a sequel uh, soundtrack as well. It's just mm-hmm. like, this was so popular we could maybe there's like one track that didn't make it on the original disc but we'll put that on there and we'll add some extra stuff that feels thematically linked and that would still move yeah. copies weird time neat yeah and 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 some of the greatest soundtracks i think of all time came out of that era especially yeah. when you got uh you know like um music supervisors who are really paying attention mm-hmm. and sometimes would like mix in scenes from the movie and bits of dialogue you listen to um to me, it's about uh, the the two that Trent Reznor did. There was Lost Highway yes. and there was Natural Born Killers, um, which are, yeah, both really dark, intense records. It's a mm. lot of really intense music because those are intense movies. Um, but they also included like bits of dialogue and some uh, Lost Highway, from what I recall, has some like weird Lynchian soundscapes yep. in between some of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the album it, that it introduced like a, a whole... lot of Americans to Ramstein. Yeah, 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 and and it, it yeah. becomes like a whole uh, sort of soundtrack experience. This whole separate experience from the film that evokes the movie, but it is something quite different. And there is a narrative embedded in these uh, pop songs. I feel like that's what a really good music supervisor ought to do: yeah. is create an album, not just sort of throw a bunch of pop hits in haphazardly. Yeah, the art of the sound because soundtrack records aren't really big anymore, except in like the vinyl collectors market. The idea of assembling a really solid soundtrack record is a bit of a lost art. Um, um, James so, Gunn. James Gunn keeps doing it. Remember when Guardians of the Galaxy 1 came out? And all that's of a true. sudden. That was a big deal, that, that soundtrack. That moved it, copies, and that was all just old 70s songs. But it yeah, moved. Yeah, yeah. It was People were invested in it. A lot of people were introduced to those songs for the first time. That's a phenomenon I think is kind of interesting, actually. The. This song was a hit when it came out, but it was just outside of like being super popular long enough that a younger generation meet, meets it for the first time in a movie or a TV show. Like the, um, what was that R- one? Uh, running Up That Hill. Running Up the Hill from Stranger Things. Great yeah, example. Kate, Kate Bush from Stranger yeah. Things. Yeah. That, that was like a hit that, when it came out, but that, now it's a bigger hit than ever. And that was a song I, yeah, it was a song that I knew, but yeah, then it wasn't really in the, in the popular zeitgeist. Same yeah. with uh, Don't Stop Believing with Glee. Uh, yeah. You know. It was always newer a, entertainment it was always a popular song, uh, younger generation stuff all the time. Yeah, uh, you know, how do you think I know about a lot of Motown? It's like Good, Mo- Good Morning Vietnam taught me a lot about oldies. Yeah, like the uh, Forrest Gump uh, did um, the same thing as well. Yeah. Uh, same with Stand by Me. Yeah. You know, movies like that were introducing me to music of the previous generation. Uh, uh, a great example um, of this. Uh, this is a song that was a hit I when it came out. And if it... you are Sorry, enterprising enough mm. to seek out a whole record, mm. I guess you'd call it a playlist now. Uh, you could ostensibly uh, just get the whole experience again. Yeah. And you could learn about these things. The, the one that I think is weird is because, uh, you know, this, the song came out and it was a hit around the time or just before it was born and it was huge. And then it became the less popular song by one of the most popular bands ever. And then Wayne's World came out and Bohemian Rhapsody became everyone's favorite song. Like, there was a time when other Queen songs were more popular than Bohemian Rhapsody. And like, if, so if you heard Queen, you were, you would hear, uh, you know, we are the champions or you would hear, uh, uh, another one bites the dust. Wayne's world made Bohemian Rhapsody like front and center again. And I think it has been ever since. Anyway, uh, Whitney, did I lose you? 
I might have lost Whitney. Oh, snap. Um, I'm not sure if William can hear me, but uh, I, I lost my audio. <laughs> I can't hear him. Okay. Uh, this is uh, kind of a pity. Okay, here's what... Well, here's, William, why don't you wrap it up a little bit, okay. uh, and I'll just say, my name is Whitney Seibold. Thank you for listening to You've Got Mail. Uh, so, apologies. A little bit of a, a technical error right here at the end. That, but, that's uh, okay. William... Uh, Introduce yourself. Uh, if you want to write us a physical letter, I'll say it first. Uh, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. William, give me the other spiel. Uh, yeah, hey, uh, and you can always email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can also follow us on social media at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Biani. He's Whitney at Whitney Seibold. Don't forget, uh, you can always subscribe to our Patreon and get this show ad-free and all of our other new shows ad-free and all the other Patreon-exclusive shows that we talked about previously in this this podcast. Thank you again to all of our patrons. You mean the world to us. Sorry if we didn't get to your letter this week. Uh, feel free to nudge us if it's important or timely or you know, feel free to write in again if we miss it. Uh, thank you again for everything. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>